0: is here. So patient is here and it lives in me. So patient is here. Cause you are alive and it lives in me. Cause I know. because i know my god see the day
1: All right, good evening, friends. My name is Rob McMonigle. I'm a ministry partner here at uh, Grace Fellowship. Welcome and thank you for joining us this evening. We've just got a couple of announcements for you as we get started here this evening. Um, first thing is, you can always tell when it gets warmer out when the number of guys in jeans and flip-flops <laughs> starts going up. So well done, gentlemen. Well done. it means I don't have to find socks. That's why I like flip-flops. Well, you look good. <laughs> All right, so a couple announcements. Um, first up is Church in the Street. So um, if you are new to Grace, uh, twice a year we typically shut down. We don't meet on a Saturday night, and we decide to go out and serve in our community, and one of those opportunities is coming up on May 29th. Um, We're going to have a couple of different opportunities to serve the community, so um, if you can, join us, which would be great. Sign up on the app, uh, and uh, we'll be really happy to have you.
2: And this is a great opportunity to include your kids serving alongside with you, so like one of our teams is going to be mulching over at the elementary school. It's always a joy because the kids love getting dirty in the mulch piles, and they're active with mom and dad, and it's really worthwhile because they get to see modeled service to the community. You get to serve right alongside each other. That always doesn't happen in church. Many times we're like, hey, go downstairs, learn about Jesus there. It's great, but now we get to be next to each other, and that's a really sweet thing. So make sure you check that out. Um, and, and then there's a big kind of a transition for us here in June. We are pivoting location. We have been very blessed to be here in this space. This is a borrowed space for us. This is... A, not our full-time facility. Uh, Faith Assembly of God lets us stay here, and that's a deep blessing. Um, that chapter is kind of coming to an end, and so we're transitioning to the elementary school. Now, for many of us, it's just transitioning to the elementary school because you've never been in, like, we've only known this, but for some of us, we're transitioning back to the elementary school. That's happening in June. We just don't want folks to show up here on a Saturday night and be confused or feel like they're not loved. It's not the case. We want you to know about it. Uh, so make sure you don't miss that and join us for that.
1: Awesome. Uh, another opportunity for great fellowship among the men uh, tomorrow Tomorrow morning, right? Yeah. Bibles and Bullets, which is my favorite form of alliteration. Um, that's the best one you've come You'll up with. You'll be blessed. Yet. <laughs> blessed, Bibles and Bullets. Um, really good opportunity. I think we'll be at the Mitchell's house um, to, uh, to come out, share uh, some time together, um, and then obviously spend some time in the Word as well. So um, if you're men over the age of 18, uh, please feel free to join.
2: It would be better if you would be with us. See, there's more that's of the good. alliterations, the B's. Yes, that's well, what that was. That was well done. Uh, this, is <laughs> this has been, what's that? There we go. It would be a beautiful thing. Uh, this has been an interesting week for us as a church body. It's been a, a week of uh, life and death for us. Um, Tom Wood was a ministry partner here. He and his my, uh, wife, Marsha, are precious people that we love dearly. And Tom had been struggling with a form of cancer for a couple of years. And it really kind of kicked off at the start of COVID. And Tom went to be with Jesus early this week. So, um, that's sad because we love him and we love Marsha. Uh, all I know is Tom's with Jesus now and nothing that plagued him is plaguing him anymore. So, we don't mourn for Tom, but we do think about Marsha and the family, the Wood family. And um, so, that's, that's one of the things we're thinking about, I'm thinking about this week. Um, but we also have life as well. The Goths, Michael and Amanda gave birth to uh, Matthew James. I Was born on Monday. And like right now, currently right now, the Corrado's, Kate and Chris, are in the middle of having a baby today. We, I don't, it might be here. It might, I don't know. Um, so that's exciting. We celebrate all of those things. Uh, and just even as we come into our time of worship, thinking about them, thinking about those important milestones of life, uh, I just wanted to pray for them. Can we do that? Can we pray? Marsha is the name of the wife. Uh, Riley is Tom's son they have some other children I just don't know all their names but uh, we can pray for the ones that we know Um, and then we're gonna respond in worship uh, singing a song this is great it says in the depths or at the heights God you seek me out like a treasured prize a love so deep and powerful it never runs out of me I know it never will it never stops chasing me I know it never will and so I think about my sister Marsha who's heartbroken right now who fought Um, tirelessly for Tom and uh, just thinking about her and kind of want to sing that song for people. Did you ever find that? Like you're singing a song, you you, you hear something that might be um, a worship song that we would sing and you think, man, this is a powerful truth. It may not be a powerful truth for me, but it's for my dad. My dad needs this or my friend needs this and sometimes you just want to declare it for someone else as well. And so, Maybe we can declare that for Marsha. Maybe you can t- declare it for yourself, but let's just spend some time here praying for her. Would you do that with me? Alright, let's close our eyes and bow our heads. God, thanks for Tom. I love him dearly. Miss him already. We're grateful for his heart of service. Um, how he always uh, would be the first one to be in line to hang up the chairs and um, work tirelessly to see our stuff set up and there's always a smile and Um, I'm glad that his suffering is done, uh, and that he's with you, and meanwhile, I just think about Marsha, and pray, God, for her peace, that your spirit would be present for her. Um, God, I pray that you would just wash over her with your love and your comfort, and just a reminder about who Christ is, and that death is not the final or last thing, that it doesn't get the last word, and that our hope is so much more meaningful in these times when maybe we find ourselves in the valley. So God, I pray that your love would be true for her and for many in our lives, God, and for us even this this weekend, for wherever our faith may be, for the things we're frustrated with, we just want to stop and remind ourselves of your faithfulness, um, that we, we can count on your goodness and your mercies that are new, that you walk with us in the valley. And that brings us hope and peace we love you jesus we praise you we pray this in the name of christ amen let's stand together continue our worship time
0: Surprise. Love so deep and powerful. I've come to find this inexhaustible. stops chasing In the land of the living, the land of the living yeah. like a river rush or a fountain flow. I've seen Stops pursuing it's a love surrender, so seeking goodness, it's taking captive every lofty hindrance, and it never runs out on stops chasing me the land of the living. Lord, it's weeks like this that we know we just lean into your presence and we thank you for your yes miracles when we get to hold a baby in our arms and we thank you for the miracles when we're crying empty-handed knowing that The ones we loved are free of pain and worry. And that even when we are sad and lonely, that you are with us. And we just thank you for that. And we just um, pray for everybody here tonight. Pray for Pastor Scott. Pray for those who couldn't or didn't come. um, That they would be blessed as well. Amen.
2: Amen. Thank you, sister. Appreciate that. Have a seat. Uh, if I have not had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name's Scott Lee, pastor here. Delighted to have you. Uh, we're in a series; got about a week, week two left. The series is called Skeptical. And really, if uh, if you're skeptical about things of faith, if you're not easily convinced, uh, if you have your reservations and doubts, so I don't blame you. In fact, I actually think it's a good thing to stop and think about why we believe what we believe. Really, this series is about uh, something called apologetics. Go ahead and turn the game down and maybe mute all the rest of the mics if you would there, Ted. Thank you, friend. Thanks for how you serve. It's about apologetics, and in apologetics, you're just seeking to kind of defend what you believe against opposing truths that might come at you. What I found in my world, sometimes it's easier, just kind of put your head in the sand and ignore everything happening around you in the world. The truth is, there's many people that are are thinking about things of the faith, and maybe they're processing it, and... They're not against it, but they're just not sure. And the truth is, even our children, as they go to school, they're going to have opposing worldviews that they have to answer for somehow. I've been thinking about that with my children as they step into eventually into adulthood. When your faith goes from the faith of my childhood to my own, you have to ask hard questions. You have to look at these things that you might be skeptical about and work to shore up these issues of the faith. So we've been looking at different aspects of Jesus's ministry, different aspects, maybe in the Bible, the gospel specifically, areas that people might be skeptical about. And the one that I want to talk about this weekend is the issue of miracles. The issue of miracles. If you were to go into the Smithsonian down in Washington, D.C., there's displayed there a leather bound version of the Bible by Thomas Jefferson. What he did And here's a picture of it. I think it should be there, Coda. Here's a picture of it. What he did was you can kind of see he, like, cut out different parts of the Bible. He would, you know, like, take chunks out or smash it together, kind of move all of these pieces around. Because Thomas Jefferson was a tinkerer. So for now, he's tinkering with the sacred texts of the Christian faith. And what he did was he went through the story of Jesus, and he excluded any miraculous, mystical miracle, anything that showed that Jesus was God, and all he did was he put together the moral teachings of Jesus. The things that, frankly, our world wants to do that. We want to say he's a good moral teacher, but we want to exclude all of these miraculous things, this claim that he would have that he was actually not just the Messiah, not just the promised one, not just a great prophet that would come, but that he was god the Son, in, in the flesh, incarnate. He wanted to mute that out, and in reality, many times our, our world wants to do that as well. When it comes to the issue of miracles, there's a resistance to supernatural miracles that Jesus was claimed to have performed, and it thinking goes something like this. We live in the modern era. And we know better that miracles don't really happen, that Jesus therefore could not have done them. And besides, belief in miracles is something like maybe that ancient people would have done because they were simple-minded, they were easily duped, easily influenced, they were naturally inclined to, to, to accept what they were told because they're simple-minded, miracles we would think are not for modern scientific people. And the belief would be that science has really trampled out the belief in the supernatural. But I would submit to you this weekend that that really doesn't hold up to scrutiny when you look at it. To consider this, I want to look at a a philosophy of thinking, and that would be someone that would call themselves a naturalist. Here's what a naturalist would think. So hang out with me for a little bit. It's going to get a little little technical, a little little researchy. I don't do that often, but I think you can hang, hang with me here. I think it'll be worthwhile. A naturalist, this is what a naturalist is. It's a person who believes his views on nature, reality, and miracles are simply the product of looking at the evidence, drawing conclusions based purely on science. So experimentation and observation. Naturalism is a philosophical assumption. It's primarily a philosophical assumption. I would submit to you that there is only nature. All that we can know is only in the natural world, the material world that we can test, we can see, we can feel, we can touch, we can smell. So therefore, there is no spiritual world. There is no immaterial world. Nature is the whole show and all of the meaning of life is contained within simple nature. Everything can be explained by observation, by experimentation. And nothing can happen outside of the laws of nature. There was a major proponent of naturalism back in the 1700s. There was a gentleman named David Hume. He was a skeptic as well. And he laid out arguments that are commonly repeated by popular writers even today. Folks like Richard Dawkins. And so much so that it's become kind of a part of our thought process. They go something like this. Number one a miracle is a violation of the known laws of nature. Number two, natural laws are immutable. That's a big, that's a five dollar word. Immutable. Unchanging over time, unable to be changed. Number three, it is impossible for immutable laws to be violated. Therefore, logic would have that miracles are not possible. Unconsciously, that's the 1700s when the enlightenment was happening. Unconsciously, that has absolutely woven its way into our worldview as thinkers today. But the problem that I would pull on a thread with that whole thought process is that science is not static. For example, who can conclusively say that the natural laws are immutable? There's an author I want to quote here. His name is Dinesh D'Souza. says this, consider this dismaying realization. Newton's laws were for nearly two centuries regarded as absolutely true. They worked incredibly well. Indeed, no body of general statements has ever been subjected to so much empirical verification. Every machine incorporated its principles. The entire industrial revolution was based on Newtonian physics and mechanics. Newton was vindicated a million times a day, yet Einstein's theories of relativity, which came along a lot later, contradicted Newton. Newton's laws were proven in important ways to be wrong or at least inadequate, this author says. And now, even Einstein's theory, so Newton had his way of thinking, right? It was proven right, and then Einstein came along and challenged that. It was seen as inadequate, and now even Einstein's theories are seen as incomplete. A researcher from UCLA, his name is Andrea Ghez, I'm not saying it rightly, said this, Newton had a great time for a long time with his description of gravity, And then at some point it was clear that for that description was fraying at the edges that that and then Einstein offered a more complete version. She says this and so today we're at that point again where we understand that there has to be something that is more comprehensive that allows us to describe gravity in the context of black holes. I can't explain to you the science behind all of that. I'm not that smart, but here's my point. What David Hume assumed was immutable, never changing laws of nature, indeed changed considerably. In other words, they're not truly immutable. They're not laws of nature. They're actually human laws that represent our best guess at how the world works. In the end... There are no known laws of nature, only human laws based on antecedent philosophy of how we come to understand something to be true. So the bottom line of that for me is there's a need for humility for our conclusions. Ironically, Hume himself recognized the limitations of science. He said, while arguing that miracles defy scientific laws, he admitted those laws were technically, empirically unverifiable since. No finite number of observations, however large, can be used to derive a general conclusion that is defensible. For example, if someone says all swans are white, how, me- how would this assertion be verified? Would you need to observe ten swans, a hundred swans, a thousand swans, a million swans? All it would take is one black swan to make that hypothesis false. Yet, this is exactly what happened as Europeans landed in Australia. To them, it was a scientific fact that all swans were white, and yet in Australia, there were black swans. Western civilization had believed scientifically they were all white. It was irrefutable until our awareness of our limited understanding and perspective changed when a black swan was found. So the idea, the idea that an occurrence is impossible simply because we've never experienced it before, it's actually a weak argument. By Hume's own set of rules, one cannot dismiss miracles absolutely since it's impossible to investigate every possible miracle. All it takes, all it takes is one outlier. Interestingly, there's a researcher named Craig Keener, and what he did was he went around to all the continents, and he interviewed people. And he found 200 million people alive today that have personally experienced or witnessed something that they cannot explain through science as a result of prayer. That's one in 35 people have had some sort of miraculous thing that they cannot explain through science. Oxford philosopher Richard Swinburne argues, if there is no God then the laws of nature are the ultimate determinants of what happens. But if there is a God, then whether or for how long and under what circumstances laws of nature operate ultimately depend on God, he says. So to deny the reality of miracles, one must prove ultimately that God doesn't exist. And this is actually a harder task than most atheists will acknowledge, especially when one in 35 people in the world would say, I have something that I cannot empirically explain. Swinburne continues, Evidence from history, science, philosophy, and even sociology seems to repeatedly point us to a theistic reality behind the universe, even if one believes in the popular theories of Big Bang and the evolution. In other words, it takes as much faith to believe that God and miracles don't exist as it does to believe that they do exist. What a Christian does is a Christian says, I'm going to look at the observations of the historical record contained within the gospel narratives that describe and attest to something, and I'm going to believe those accounts because of the historical proofs that the supernatural occurred. The naturalist says, I'm only going to believe what I can observe and what I can measure I cannot believe in the stories of someone else's experience, but I would argue the evolutionary view can't observe something that happened at a point in time when no one was there to observe it. So it's not observable. It takes faith to believe a natural worldview, the same way that it takes faith to believe something outside of nature, something outside of this that we can observe and measure and quantify is somehow interfering with what is taking place. In short, scientific method has not trampled out belief in the supernatural. The rational mind actually would open itself to the opportunity that there's something outside of what we know that busts and changes our categories. Interestingly, the Pew Pew Research Foundation found that 80% of Americans believe in miracles somehow. That's a fascinating number to me. I I don't know that it would be so hard, according to that number, to convince someone that miracles are true. I I think the next step, though, in the middle of all of that, is why does it matter that there are miracles? What does that have to do with me? What difference does it make in my life anyway? What's fascinating to me is that the gospel writer John actually spent a lot of time trying to explain why these things even mattered in the first place. And when he was speaking to people, he was not speaking to ancient minds that were easily duped and and just accepted everything that they were told. In fact, they were some of the most skeptical people when they dealt with Jesus. When they heard what Jesus was up to, they said, man, this guy's crazy. He's a raving madman. He's drunk, can't you see? He's demonically possessed, they would call that. They were as skeptical or more skeptical than we are, so when John stepped in, he wanted to say, I want to explain to you not just that it happened, but why it happened and why it's a big deal to you and why it's a big deal to me. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We've got the orange Bibles underneath. That's going to be page 724, 724, and I want to take a look at Jesus' first recorded miracle, his first recorded miracle in John chapter 2. As you're turning there, as you're turning there, let me just start in on this. John chapter 2, we'll start in verse 2. It says this, on the third day, on the third day of what? Well, whatever happened from before that in John chapter 1. Three days later, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. So it's this kind of like along the lake, a little little village along the lake. There's a a wedding taking place. Jesus' mother, Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And Jesus and his disciples, those have been his 12 buds that were hanging out with him, had also been invited to the wedding. But when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, weddings at this point in time were a huge deal. It was the joining of two lives and two, like, community groups coming together. They would have been a week-long affair. They would have, can you imagine, like, it's expensive to feed people for one night Could you imagine like a a week of of having to do that? So that's, that's a pretty big deal. And that responsibility would lay on the groom. The groom would have to finance this. It was a way of demonstrating, hey, I have the resources to care for this young lady and bring her into my household and she's going to be cared for. So for him to run out of supplies like that would have been really, really embarrassing. It wouldn't have only been embarrassing but for him it would have translated into shame for him for a long time in some cases lawsuits could be filed legally <laughs> lawsuits could be filed if he ran out of supplies in the middle of all of that so when they say hey they ran out of wine it's not like "Oh, bummer it's like gasp like this is a big deal so Mary we don't know if she's a concerned friend we don't know if she's a part of the catering crew we don't know what's going on a relative she she looks to her son and says hey there's a problem uh, we're out of wine, and this poor fellow is going to be in a hurt real quick. How does Jesus respond? It's, it's quite curious to me. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Uh, we, we read that. Guys, don't quote Jesus on that one. That's not going to go well for you. In their culture, that was not pejorative. That was not condescending. It, the language behind that is more like, ma'am. Ma'am is an affectionate term. Ma'am, what, what does that have to do with? with you and I? Why does his problems have to become our problems? And then Jesus says this, this is fascinating. He says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. So what's he talking about? Is he like, hey, I'm just, I, haven't, I, w- I haven't quite woken up yet today, <laughs> feeling a little groggy, I had nothing to do with that. I want to rewind just a little bit, and you can always catch up with this on the app. We've got all of these for free on our app. But a couple weeks ago, this is what we said. When, when we understand Jesus to be God the Son, He is revealing the heart and the mind and the character of God Himself. In fact, Hebrews 1 would tell us in the past, God used to use prophets Now he's revealing himself. The exact representation of God is in Jesus Christ. That's how he chose to reveal himself. And over and over again in the book of John, Jesus would use this language, my hour hasn't come yet. My hour, he's not talking about time on a clock. He's talking about a moment when his glory is going to be revealed. Now, his hour did come in John chapter 17 when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's in agony. He's getting ready to be betrayed and and tortured and put on the cross. He says, my hour has come. I am about to be glorified. I don't understand that. He's getting ready to head into the worst agony a human being can know. And he looks at that and says, that's my glory? That's the glory of heaven unleashed on mankind wasn't just his suffering it's that God would suffer on our behalf and that Christ would be resurrected and we through belief can be resurrected with him as well the glory of God was being revealed And people were going to see that, and people were going to understand that. And yet, throughout Jesus' ministry, he had this constant posture of like, hey, don't tell anybody what I just did. They're not ready for it. It's called the progressive revelation of Jesus Christ. We see Jesus, meek and mild, you know, the lamb and the children coming up to him, and he's just calm and humble and always self-controlled, and he's just kind of like meek, you know. Like, we see that picture of Jesus in the Gospels, He says the glory is being revealed on the cross. Again, this amazing thing. But there's also the glory of Jesus that's going to occur yet in the future. Revelation paints a picture of Jesus that's totally different. He's not meek, he is powerful, authoritative, he's radiant, he's riding on a horse like heroes always ride on horses. He's got a sword. He's running into battle, he's vanquishing the foes, the the forces of heaven, the people of God, the, the hosts of heaven and the angels are behind him. Like, the glorified Christ is revealed. Yet Jesus shows up on the scene, says, Mom, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. His mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's possible that Mary knew that Jesus was up to doing something miraculous? I I actually think that Mary, at this point, most scholars believe that she was most likely a widow. So it wasn't Jesus, the son of Joseph. It was just Jesus. He would have been the head of that household. She was regularly used to relying on her firstborn son. And so he's just saying, take care of it, Jesus. (laughs) Like, figure it out. So what happens? Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. This is, that's a big big pot. There was a, and and there was there was a lot of significance to these jars. They were ceremonial jars. For these Jews, God was seen as holy and other and separate from. You could not walk into his presence if you were unworthy or unclean. So they would regularly have to do work in order to be right, to go before God, they would have to wash themselves every time they would sin. Ladies, every time you had a monthly cycle, you had to wash yourself before you could go into the synagogue, into the temple, into the tabernacle. You had to work, and every time you would sin, guess what, you'd have to do it again. And then you'd have to do it again. And then you'd have to do it again. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water, So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some water out, take it to the master of the banquet. This was like the MC. This was the person who was responsible to keep the party pumping, right? Check and see if they're getting a little late. They're getting a little tired here. Let's break out the the hokey pokey. Here we go. All right, (laughs) Let's, let's make it happen. Another round of games. And they would be responsible for mixing in just the right amount of water into the wine. Too strong, it could get a little dicey, too watery, people would be upset. So the master of the ceremonies, the master of the banquets, keeping an eye on this, and the master of the banquet, tastes the water that's been turned all of a sudden miraculously, cellularly, into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it from the water knew. Then he calls to the bridegroom, this guy who was on the the cusp of being humiliated, maybe even sued. I don't imagine his wife would have been real happy with him in that culture if he would have completely dropped the ball. He was in the middle of getting ready to stare down an angry wife for the next five years, and nobody wants to live with that. And all of a sudden, the master of the ceremonies calls to the bridegroom and says, everyone brings out the choice wine first. You bring out the bottles, and then comes the boxes of wine after that, right? And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, because the more you drink, the better I sound in karaoke. That's kind of how it works, right? But you have saved the best Till now, not only are you not shamed, but he is honored. Man, can you believe this guy? He brought out the best wine now. The master of the ceremony never even knew that it was Jesus. Never knew. Everything went on, the party continued. Verse 11. Wraps it together, and I want to double click on verse 11 and extract how, how, what, maybe we can understand a little bit what miracles actually, not just what are they, but what do they mean to me? This is what verse 11 says. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. Say the word signs. Signs. Through which Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The first thing that I want to double click on is this, that miracles are a sign of who Jesus is. They're a sign of who Jesus is. And in fact, many times when the New Testament writers were writing about what they were experiencing, they wouldn't call them just miracles, they would call them signs and wonders Signs. What is a sign? Signs points to something or indicates something else. A wonder. An event that catches the attention of others so that they're amazed and astonished. A mighty work, they would be called. An act displaying great power, especially divine power. Now, I I bet most of us, at some point in time, we've had something happen and we ask God, God, I just need a miracle right now. Like this test is coming and I'm not ready. (laughs) I need a miracle like, I'm, I'm asking for a miracle for this tumor. I need some extra money to make it through the month. And the disciples of Jesus, they would have come to him saying, hey, my daughter's sick. Hey, we don't have enough fish on our boats. Most of the time, our, the miracles that we're crying out for are in response to a need or some amount of suffering that occurs. Now, it's absolutely true that as the wine was needed in this space, that Jesus was responding to a need, but it wasn't its meaning. It wasn't the meaning that Jesus was just alleviating suffering. D.A. Carson commented on the Gospel of John, saying, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses. Here's that word, but signs. Significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. They were pointing to a deeper revelation about who Jesus is and what the kingdom of God is like and what God is all about. Listen, they had a theological purpose, not just a practical one. When I was growing up, I have three other siblings, and my parents, I think they must have read it in a magazine somewhere or did, heard one of those, you know, like PSAs, like the more you know. because remember that? The more you know. Yeah, <laughs> somebody who did that. <laughs> that was great, someone whistled it. Yeah, I think they watched that because they said, hey, if ever um, something happens to us and we need to send someone from church or like a neighbor to come pick you up from school, we're gonna give them a, a secret passphrase." The secret passphrase was this. It was the word music machine. It was like an old kid's CD we would listen to. It It had like, like church music on it. It was music machine was the name of it. And that was the passphrase. And so it was like this. Like if we were ever at school and someone else needed to pick us up, the way we would know that it was the authority of our parents was if they had that sign, if they had that passphrase, we would accept the authority of that individual as if it was our parents'. Think about about these first century Jews. Think about the ancient Hebrews. When someone shows up and says, I am speaking for God, how did they know that it was legit? How did they know that this person was trustworthy? Over and over again, the way God would authenticate his authority was through signs and wonders. That happened in the New Testament with the apostles. The way that they authenticated their authority, was with signs and wonders. This happened with Elijah. Elijah was someone that they recognized as a prophet because he could do amazing things. Or think about Moses. When Moses said, how am I going to tell them who is sending them? God says, well, Moses, you got a staff in your hand, right? I'm going to use that. That's going to be the sign and the wonder. When you throw it on the ground, it's going to turn into a snake. Touch the water, it turns into blood. Do all this stuff with your staff. It's going to be the sign and the wonder. It's a sign of authority. So when Jesus shows up, it's not just to alleviate pain and suffering. Of course, he wants to do that. But his signs and his wonders was telling the story to Old Testament worldview that was saying, this is who I am. So did you know there's over 38 miracles of Jesus performed? There are things like this. Turning the water into wine. Healing people from sickness, almost death, leprosy, withered limbs, death, blindness, severed limbs driving out demons, authority over animals. The the disciples caught two boatloads full of fish. That's pretty cool. Calming a storm, feeding 5,000 people with some lunch scraps, walking on water, making a tree wither right in front of their eyes, ultimately raising himself from the dead. And the Gospel of John John says he did even more than that. And if we were going to write him down, we couldn't fill all the libraries in the world with the things that Jesus had done and the things that Jesus had said. What's funny to me is in the middle of all of that, like, that's a lot. That's a lot of action going on that Jesus was displaying. And in the middle of that, you know what the Pharisees would regularly do? They would regularly come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, show me a sign. Show me a sign, Jesus. And I think that's why Jesus was a little irritated. I'm not not a dog that you can just tell to do tricks whenever you want me to. You're unbelieving he would he would even say these these signs were glowing neon lights to who Jesus was the other thing that i want to double click on is that miracles are a sign of what's to come they're a sign of what's to come do you ever think about this that all the people that Jesus healed even Lazarus who raised from the dead he, they would all go on get sick and eventually die. In other words, it was never meant to be the terminal fix for the problem of sin in their life. I believe what Jesus was doing was he was giving a foretaste of the kingdom of God. That in God's kingdom death is being done away with. Withered limbs are made whole. Minds that can't seem to think straight because they're so oppressed are made sound resources that were scarce are now abundant he was revealing the kingdom of God it was a foretaste that's why Jesus would say hey my hour hasn't come yet there's gonna be more to be revealed there's going to be so much coming that you're not even going to recognize it. And so you need to see and understand this. That's what John is trying to say. This is why it's so significant that the ceremonial pots were being used in this to display his power and his authority. You used to clean yourself every single time you would sin. You'd have to like, sacrifice an animal and clean yourself every single time. You'd have to go through that. It's exhausting. It was a chore. And it would always separate like the clean from the unclean. And when you saw someone who didn't have as much as you and you saw them as a little dirty, you wouldn't just think, well, they don't have a lot. You would think they're spiritually degraded in your mind. So when Jesus says, there's these ceremonial pots, he's saying something new has come. A better way has come. He would say, I'm the living water. You drink from me and you're never going to be thirsty. And what I serve is going to be so much better. Like the better wine is coming. It's going to be better than anything you've experienced before. God is saving the best for last. The old is giving way to the new. Consider this miracle where Jesus healed ten men of leprosy. When they had leprosy, they were completely removed from their community. And in a collectivist culture like that, they weren't individuals. They weren't like, I've got this on my own. They desperately needed their culture and their community. Their family was there. Their ability to get food was there. So when they had leprosy, they were outcasts. They were not accepted. So when Jesus comes in and he makes them whole, he's taking those things that had been disintegrated in community called them clean said go back to the priest and show yourself and you get to come back and be integrated again in community you see the kingdom of god is not just about you and god the kingdom of god is creating a people called to his own integrating broken relationships where sin and corruption and pollution has caused nothing but strife jesus it it it, Jesus is saying, I am more than just the solving to your problem. I'm creating a new pathway. Think about the Samaritan woman at the well. He miraculously comes up to her and says, these are all the relationships you used to have. Like, that's an amazing thing. It wasn't just about his knowledge of her history. He was was walking up to a Samaritan, someone who was a mudblood, a half-breed, someone who was ostracized. He wasn't just making a statement of knowledge. He was including a a whole people group into the people of God. He was claiming this this promise to Abraham that someday all the nations of the world, even the Gentiles, even these people that that are far away from me from a cultural standpoint, they're going to be brought into that. He wasn't just meeting a need. He was making a sign. And the sign was also about a new way, the kingdom of God that's coming. The third thing that I want to double-click on here is that miracles, as amazing as they are, we can all ask for them, but they're not needed for a life of faithfulness. Miracles are not needed for a life of faithfulness. John John says, like, all of these miracles, it caused people to believe. They were always there to stir up faithfulness in people. We read this happen all the time in the Gospels. Someone saw it and they believed. But for some of us, like we struggle to believe for a different reason. Like, why didn't my miracle happen? And we see it, and we celebrate it, in someone else, but then we stop, and we think, why didn't my spouse repent? Why, why didn't you fix that tumor? God, what, why is it I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and now I'm shaking my head because they're finally gone, and I don't know what to do with that. God, why is it when we prayed for a space to meet, the doors just kept shutting on what we wanted? God, why is it my child is just distant, and I'm, I'm calling out for a miracle? Every time we see a miracle celebrated, the backside of that is this question, why not about the one that I needed? Why not one more life? Why not my family? When we don't see the miracle, it actually can cause us to question God. And I think this tension is presented in the story of the water being turned into wine as well. Here's what it shows us. It shows us that we can't control God. We can't control God. We don't get to tell him how or when he's going to heal someone. And Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, we're out of, we're out of wine. We're out of wedding. Jesus do something about it and Jesus says, it's it's not my time. Jesus is saying, you can't control me. You can't tell God how he's going to heal someone now. You can humbly approach God. You can make a request as a child to a father. But then you release it to him and sometimes his answer is no. Sometimes the miracles don't happen. And what I find so fascinating is that insisting on miracles, like the Pharisees did, was actually a sign of disbelief and not belief. This is why Jesus was so bothered by it. He says, if you didn't believe the signs of Moses, then you're not going to believe these signs either. We make the mistake sometimes of saying, God, I'm going to believe in you if you would just I'll surrender my life to you if you would just. And I'm not going to tell God what he can or cannot do because there are times when he blesses the surrendered heart with provision in a miraculous way. He does that from time to time. But insisting on miracles is actually a sign of disbelief. It's no matter what. Like what I started, either you have faith in what you can't see or you have faith... And what you can see. It's always going to take faith one way or another, but there's actually more faith when there's not a miracle. It's the prayer of Daniel, Daniel's friends when they were in the furnace, and they said, We believe that God will save us. We believe that He's going to do something miraculous, but even if He doesn't, we will not bow down and worship these false idols. Even if. Don't forget that it was Jesus crying tears of blood in the garden of Gethsemane who said, God, take this cup away from me. I don't want this. And he had to deal with a no from God. Jesus said, if there's any other way... What I find so interesting is we chafe up against that idea of the exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way to God. I'm telling you, if there was another way and I was Jesus, I would be ticked off. If it was just as easy to do it on your own or through Islam or Hinduism, if there was some other way and I had to go through all that Jesus went through, I'd be pretty disappointed. But it was the only way. And the miracle didn't show up through deliverance, out of that suffering. But it showed up on the other side of it. And sometimes the miracles that God wants to produce in our lives is the transformation that happens as we walk through the suffering. And we will cry out, God, save me from it. God, save me from it. Jesus was perfected in his glory through his suffering. That is one of the deepest theological truths that I struggle to understand. The savior of the universe was somehow not perfected until he suffered. It was in his suffering that he was transformed and his glory was revealed. And sometimes it's when God says no to the thing that we're asking so that we can walk through it and we experience the transformation, not just the alleviation from the carnal thing, this temporal thing, this physical thing that we're going through, but the real transformation of our soul. Isn't that the greater miracle? Isn't that the thing that lasts forever? But it always takes faith. It always takes faith. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for you. And I, I think the best way just to respond to all of this stuff is just worshiping and stopping and saying, "God, I believe that you can do, and I will follow you even with you don't, even when you don't. You are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords." And in John chapter two, it says the disciples saw these signs, and they believed, and they worshipped. And that's what we're gonna do too. Let me pray. God, thanks for your word. It brings life, it is always fruitful, and we cast our gaze and our heart towards it, asking you, God, to continue to strengthen, rebuke, train us in your righteousness. God, help us see our areas of unbelief, spaces where um, maybe we're insisting on miracles, maybe where we're saying, God, if you were really, then I would. God, stir in us a faith that's deeper and stronger in belief in you. God, we believe in you. We we believe you're breathing miracles even today. But you want to do the deep work of the soul, the deep work of provision, the deep work of transformation. So God, we worship, we praise you, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Stand with us. Let's worship.
0: da, da, da. King. Come let us bow at his feet. He has done great things. See what a Savior has done. See how his love overcomes. He has done great things. He has done great. Yes, and amen. You will do great things. God, you do great.
2: Thanks for being here with us this weekend we love you guys make sure you're registered for church in the streets we'd love to see everyone there see you next weekend